I want to begin by making a, a statement that I believe is the greatest existential threat to our faith. Uh, it's not a threat that comes from without. It's not a threat that comes from out there somewhere, from our culture, from our society, from the modern age in which we live, but it's actually an interior threat that I think that all of us fall into at times, and that is pretense. Nothing robs us uh, of the joy of the Christian life like pretending to be the Christians we ought to be. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, we considered as we went through 2 Timothy this, this verse, but I want to apply it more directly. In the context, Paul is warning Timothy against false teachers who have entered into the church. And he says that they are people that are always learning uh, but never coming to the truth. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, he says that they have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And then he says, avoid such people. Now, what is Paul attacking about these teachers is that they have selfish goals, selfish ambitions, that they are not, they are not men and women that are surrendered to the truth of who Jesus is, but they are actually trying to utilize the gospel for their own advantage. And he says they are always, they, they appear to be godly. On the surface, they, they, have, uh, they have some form of, of what we would call the Christian faith. They have the right vocabulary. They have the right book in their hands. Um, they say the right things, but there's something absent in their life. And it's the non-negotiable, necessary reality for us to truly live as followers of Jesus, and that's power. I think that that's a very powerful statement. He says, listen, you need to avoid such people. But when I began to look at my own life and began to see that the threat to my own faith is often my own pretense, pretending to be more in touch with God than I've actually been, the desire to put forth the best face, how quickly it hinders God's ability uh, to work through me, and basically that idea of having the appearance of godliness but denying its power because its power comes only to those that are yielded. And I think that this is the threat. He says, avoid such people, but I kept feeling like the Spirit kept speaking to me when I was meditating on this verse. Instead of saying, avoid such people, I felt like God was saying, avoid being such people. <laughs> I think that that is a great need for us today, is it not? The average Christian lives like a practical atheist. We have just enough faith to get ourselves out of hell into heaven, but we do not have enough faith to live victoriously today. We have forgotten that what we are told in Scripture is Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you again. I will send my helper, the spirit of truth. He will come and make his home within you. We will know you from the inside out. In other words, God doesn't, Jesus didn't die on the cross ascend to, ascend to the right hand of, of the Father and say, now good luck. Believe in me and work it out in your own strength. No, he says, in order to actually live out the life that I, have, that I demand, I provide my life to actually be imparted to yours, that there needs to be a supernatural component to our existence, that we need power. Now, this is a, a powerful uh, passage also in 2 Timothy because he says in, ver in chapter 1, verse 7, that for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of what? Power and of love and of self-control. The marks of the spirit-filled man or woman, boy or girl, 
is that they are not controlled by spiritual timidity. They're not ashamed. I think spiritual power allows Paul to declare these words in spite of the fact that he had been beaten half to death on multiple occasions, stoned, left for dead, accused of lies, all these things just constantly bombarded with with oppressive realities uh, throughout his ministry. And yet he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he lived with an incredible authority. In fact, he said, I didn't come to you with eloquence, uh, with some great ability of speech. I wasn't the oratory master, but I came to you in a demonstration of the spirit and power. And I believe that this is the necessary component for a church community to truly live out its call to be advocates for Jesus Christ, to reflect his reality, that we aren't to live in fear of what the world can do to us because the world can do nothing to us because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Do we believe that? And I think that this is important for us to understand because what we are talking about when we're talking about power, how do you define power? I mean, the world has lots of ways of defining power right now. Our movie market is bombarded with superhero movies. We love the idea of heroes, don't we? Um, Cameron and I went and saw the worst super, because Cameron, everyone that knows Cameron knows that he has been a Batman fanatic. I mean, it's almost idolatry, Cameron, but we, we accept it because you're awesome. Uh, we went and saw Batman versus Superman, which everybody knows is the, maybe the worst comic book movie ever made. Like, I can think of a few worse ones. And I think that Ben Affleck was in that one too, but I won't, I won't continue to throw him under the bus. That's not the point. I'm not trying to diminish his power. Uh, but I saw a trailer for what I know is going to be another bad one, and that's the new Justice League. And in the trailer, the Flash goes, what's your power? And he says, I'm rich. Batman, as I, I just confirmed it with Cameron before the sermon, he said Batman would never say that, which just shows it's going to be a lame movie. But the point is, is that Power is often, uh, we, we think of those who are the most successful, those who have the most resources uh, available to them. We think of power as one who has ability, strength, or authority. But power in our culture is a top-down reality, and that's not the reality that we have in the scriptures. In fact, power actually is defined the same, but how we get to it is the exact opposite. Uh, the actual or potential capacity to affect something by virtue of inherent excellence or rightful authority. This is the very definition of power, and it's actually the same from a biblical perspective, but how we get that power is something that is totally outside of what our culture portrays as a normal way to, or a normal means to authority in life. Uh, I think it's interesting that the source, we are told, of our power is not our own intellect, not our own strength, not our own abilities, not, not our birthrights. Uh, we can, people can be born into power and authority, but spiritual power and authority is something that all of us have available as followers of Christ. And this is one of the things that I want us to understand is that the great threat to our faith is that pretense of pretending to be something that we're not actually experiencing in reality. And what I want you to understand is that the reality 
of the power of the Spirit is totally available to each one of us. The ability to live supernaturally natural and naturally supernatural is not only available, but it is absolutely necessary. And so here in Zechariah chapter four, verse six, he says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, that the source of power in the believer's life is not something that is manifested out of their own ability, their own intellect, their own giftings, but it is something that comes to us from outside and it comes into our very lives. And so when people live defeated Christian lives and they constantly are beat up with the pop psychology that says that what you, what you were raised with and how you were raised and how you were brought up by your parents and the, the environment in which you live, that is what defines you as a human being. The gospel says, yes, those things are realities, but we can't say, I don't have the ability to live victoriously. I am by nature a timid person, or I am by nature a distracted person, or I am by nature these things. You don't understand how I was raised. I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a mom. Whatever the, the scenario might be by which you accept defeat, we must be reminded again and again that though you may have been born one way, as a Christian, you have been what? Born again. There's a new reality, a new environment, a new authority. Yes, I grew up with a dad. I like having your arm cut off when you get saved. You don't grow a new arm. There is a glitch, something, a missing component in my life that will always be there, and it will be a part of what defines my reality, my history. However, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have the ability to take the broken materials of our lives and supernaturally infuse it with his presence by which he can utilize it to bring a witness to his kingdom, to his son. This is the power that comes to us as Christians. In fact, I love what A.W. Tozer said uh, about the Holy Spirit when he said, the Holy Spirit cease, when the Holy Spirit ceases to be incidental and again becomes fundamental, the power of the Spirit will be asserted once more among the people called Christians. That we aren't simply who we are and what we are because of our parents, our friends, and our teachers, but that God himself has not only called us, not only saved us, but he literally has endowed us with the spiritual resources necessary to live a holy life. We don't have excuses for experiencing utter failure as Christians. And if we are experiencing failure, if we are a people that have an appearance of godliness but are denying its power, what that is showing is that there is something not yielded to God. You are, you are, you are not allowing him the right that he should have over your life. If there is still some kind of autonomy that's being held onto you, you short circuit um, God's spirit and his ability to actually lead, to guide, to illuminate, to instruct, to empower, to infuse us with that assurance that is necessary. How does this power come into our lives? How does the power of the spirit come into our lives? I think that the passage that defines it the best is actually 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace, now here, let me give you the context. Paul has had an affliction. We don't know what the affliction is. He called it a thorn in his flesh. We don't know if it's spiritual. We don't know if it's physical. All we know is that he prayed to God three times that God would remove it. And this is what God spoke to his spirit. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, this is where power, though it may be defined the same as the world defines it, it does not come the same way, nor does it accomplish the same things. 
It comes to us not in us picking ourselves up by our bootstraps, grabbing a hold of the great lie that our society has been telling us since we were little children that you can do anything that you want to do. You can be anything you want to be. You just have to believe in yourself. We're not embracing this new Gnosticism uh, that Mark Sayers talks about um, so fully in The Vanishing Church and in Stranger Days. We're not coming into this place where we have the ability to define for ourselves our own existence because what we see is that people are falling flat on their faces and actually leading to even greater levels of despair as they believe the lie that they can be anything that they want to be as long as they believe in themselves. The scripture says something totally different to us. That's not how power comes. It says power comes through weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I think that this is important. One of the things that was, I think, one of the few strange benefits of actually being such a flaming pagan for so long uh, and not coming to Jesus until I was in my late 20s is that when I got saved, I knew how messed up I was, how how zero power was available to me, how my own pride and my arrogance and my own, my own willingness to do whatever it took to accomplish whatever I wanted, that the wreckage that I left behind, it created a, an internal sense of despair as God illuminated the sin in my heart as I came before the scriptures and discovered the person of Jesus. And that fundamental brokenness was like, I didn't need Jesus to be cool. I didn't need him to be relevant. I just needed him to save me. And that fundamental brokenness is actually what brought, a brought, um, brought into my life this newfound power, this newfound authority. And it's not the authority to do, do crazy, awesome things. It was this newfound authority to be a witness to the beauty of who Jesus is because the love of God was poured out in my heart. And my, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating is that um, the most intensely spirit-filled human beings I've ever met have always been kind of, and I would say almost without exception, uh, there's, there's, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, it has been people who have been radically saved from the bottom of the dung pile. Uh, the group that I traveled to, the, I've shared with you guys before, but I traveled with a group of, um, a group of men uh, from a, an organization called U-Turn for Christ to the Philippines. And these, these men, all of them uh, that were in this particular group, had been hardcore either meth addicts or heroin addicts, and all of them had done, uh, done hard time in prison. One particular guy had, uh, had been literally robbing people uh, with baseball bats at, uh, at cash, machine, uh, cash machines to get, his, to get his cash to buy his heroin, and he was beating them with baseball bats to get this money. And this man got so radically saved in prison that when we went to the Philippines, there were two things that marked me. First of all, spiritual timidity is not a part of the vocabulary. Now, it does help that every single one of those men seem to be about six foot four and weigh like 350 pounds. Now, I'm not going to lie, that creates a certain level of power right out of the gate. Uh, but, uh, but what made them so powerful was not that they were these massive men, but that they were like, they were like these sweet... I, I don't think they would be offended, but they just kind of seem like teddy bears who just wanted to give everybody a bear hug. And they're the guys that, like, on the plane, one of them would stand up and pray over the whole plane. Even doesn't matter if people wanted it or not. Uh, they, Jerry Brown, the founder 
of of U-Turn for Christ. I remember he like, he, and he is a giant man as well who was also a hardcore drug addict, even ran a prostitution ring um, for the Navy while he was in the Navy off the coast of the Philippines in his youth. I mean, this guy was a bad guy. And here he is, he's now, he kind of, he just sort of looks like and acts like D.L. Moody. And on the plane, he's like, Josh, why, you gonna share Jesus with that guy sitting next to you? Like, I'm like, I, maybe. It was like this Japanese man sitting next to me and he immediately pretended like he didn't speak English. It was, it was amazing. He just kind of buried himself in, the, in, in his book and I'm like, I'm gonna try. But that kind of boldness, and it wasn't, they were, was, is that a little maybe more obnoxious than you would be? But they didn't seem obnoxious. They just seem excited about the existence that they had discovered in Christ. What they found was power. And I remember, this is the thing, is to go from being a hard criminal and a heroin addict to going to the island of the the Philippines, this is one of the most powerful, children are one of the best gauges of character. Like I always say that, if if my Henry or Hattie like cried at strangers, I'm like immediately like, ooh, that person's probably something... I don't, know what, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you got some bad energy because my kids don't generally cry at people. Like, test them out. Eh, oh, no, bad person. <laughs> uh, so, and I always say that about my kids because they weren't nervous of strangers. So if they were, I was like, I don't know, something. But I remember in the Philippines, Jerry uh, and the guys, they would be surrounded. He would buy like bags of candy and they would be surrounded by hundreds of children. Uh, when we go into these villages, and he's just like loving on them, kneeling down. They're all around him. Like you could barely see him, like this pile of little Filipino kids, like all around him. And it's just incredible. They were like drawn to him like a magnet. They weren't like around. I had candy too, and nobody came to me. Um, <laughs> it actually was one of the few missionary trips where I'm like, everything I do is actually meaningless here. Like I was there to play a concert. They didn't care about my music. The only thing they cared about was that we were doing a raffle for a live pig and rice. And it was like the crowd went up to the stage for the live pig. And then when we went up to play, it was like everyone just left. It was like, <laughs> I don't get this music that's happening right now. Uh, but I think that the power of the gospel in these men, the power of the spirit-filled life, and it came through their weakness. They met Jesus in their lowest point. Because I always say that no matter how deep your sin goes, Jesus' love goes deeper still. And the, and the manifestation of that spirit-filled life was it was a daily, they had no choice but to yield daily. And when we ask ourselves, is that the kind of life we're living? Uh, well, I want us to actually be able to answer that because according to Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. And that's not just a, a bad comic book line, that's just actually true. When we have power, when we're given authority, it actually requires something of us. It requires a responsibility to experience the liberation of the Spirit. There has to be a yieldedness to the Spirit. But what is the outcome of the Spirit-powered life? Uh, And what do we have the power to actually do? Because this is where the rub comes and where people have misconceptions and they think we're going to start moving into really intensely charismatic realms. Are you going to start talking about about healing and raising people from the dead and signs and wonders. And I want you to know that those were outcomes of the, of the power of the Spirit, but they were, those, those things were always for the purpose of witness. They were to undergird the witness. That's the real power. And so this is what the power of the Spirit creates in our lives. First of all, the power of the Spirit gives us the ability to be witnesses to the gospel. When we are spirit-filled people, when there is total yieldedness 
to Christ, his spirit then is able to actually come in and instruct and to teach. It's not enough to just be, remember it says they have the appearance of godliness or they're always learning but never coming to a knowledge of God, that our learning, our um, our growth as Christians is not, is not just simply that we might have um, the ability to answer people's arguments. We need something beyond that. There needs to be something compelling about our life. There needs to be something supernatural about it. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what is the outcome of that power? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, we see that power being played out in the disciples' lives. This is after Pentecost. You remember, this is what the disciples are told. What was Peter like before he became a spirit-filled man? He says, Peter... Peter's like, I will never deny you, Lord. I would, I'd lay down my life for you. He was impulsive. He's always the first to make great claims about his ability. And this is what brought about tremendous failure. And Jesus said, listen, Peter, I tell you the truth. You're gonna deny me three times. And I believe that Jesus allowed Peter to go through this. He even said, Satan has desired to sift you. But I pray that you will, you will, when you come through it, you will be strengthened. In other words, Peter, you need to actually see how utterly incapable you are of serving me apart from my spirit within you before you can be a man used powerfully by me. And what happens? Peter goes from being the denier of Christ to preaching that beautiful message on Pentecost and over 3,000 souls are saved. And I love in Acts chapter four, um, verse 33, it says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And I, I think of Stephen, one of, the, one of the great passages of like, what is spirit, is there something tangible about the spirit-filled life? Remember what it says about Stephen when he was about to be martyred? It's like a passage that has always struck me. And you're like, is that so? Uh, it says that when they looked upon him, his face shined like an angel. He had, the, he had the temperament of one totally at peace. There was literally light in him. Like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and his face literally reflected the glory of God and the children of Israel became afraid. I believe that that sort of light is available. I have seen people that have light in them and I have also seen people that are dark. And it's something that's beyond what we can fully explain, but we know it when we see it. And I believe that God wants us to be a people that reflect something that goes beyond the ability to give an answer. But it's the ability to actually reflect the very life of Christ. And so the power to be witnesses is not the spirit-filled person has the power to reflect the gospel, not only simply in what they say, but in how they live. There is a power and authority in their very life. Charles Finney was notorious for being able to go places and people would begin to weep before he even began to preach. And he was a man who believed heavily in that the witness of the gospel is determined by our willingness to enter into progressive sanctification, not selective sanctification, which is how many of us live, get rid of one sin area so that we feel good about all the other sin areas that we refuse to deal with but the belief that God actually has the ability to transform how we live, which brings me to the second point. The, the Spirit gives us the power to be witnesses to the gospel, which means that the Spirit also gives us the power to overcome strongholds, both within and without. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, it says, For the weapons 
of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Isn't it interesting that we have the, that this power to actually to destroy strongholds, and then it says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. How do you do that? Because have you ever seen an apologetic debate? Have you ever seen like um, the great uh, Scottish uh, theologian in scientist, uh, John Lennox. I watched this debate with him and Christopher Hitchens, and he, he annihilated Hitchens, and Hitchens is really stinking smart and actually weirdly very charming. And even Hitchens at the end says he won. But you know what's funny? I didn't see anyone getting up and repenting and giving their lives to Jesus after the debate was over. All it was was someone won an argument. And that's not what we're called to be. I think that what Lennox does, and don't get me wrong, I think apologetics serves its place. I think apologetics are actually to strengthen the believer's faith. Uh, but as far as witnessing in the power of the gospel, the power of the gospel is that no one can argue a transformed life. Nobody can argue against the testimony of your transformation. Those are realities that go beyond the ability uh, for the critic to truly uh, critique because you can't critique someone's experience. And I think that this is important because what, what we are told again and again is that the kind of knowledge that we should be growing in, a spirit-filled uh, person is not one who's growing in intellectual capacity. A spirit-filled person is one who is growing in, in, uh, in spirit in intellectual illumination or spiritual illumination. That is, it's increasing degrees of intimacy with the living Christ. We wanna be like how Peter, James, and John, when they are confronted for, um, for preaching Jesus, it says that these, they could tell that these men were uneducated, but that they had been with Jesus. I would ask you that the power, spirit-filled life, the power-filled life is a life that makes people recognize that you have been with Jesus. It's what the witness is about, and it's also the means by which we tear down the strongholds. Now, here's the thing about strongholds, is that we need, to, we need to recognize that the world, it's so funny, Christians get so uncomfortable with certain topics. Like, we act like, you know, if you talk about the devil or the reality of demonic presence, that somehow, like, your Christianity is starting to get kind of weird. Like, Let's just know that if you believe in the fundamental orthodoxy of the faith, that Jesus died, he's God in human flesh, he's somehow one with the Father, there's one God and yet there's three persons, you believe that he died on the cross and somehow dealt with the sin of humanity, past, present, and future, and actually broke the stronghold of sin, the devil, the dominions of darkness, and that you believe that on the third day he rose from the dead and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, you've already crossed the threshold of what's acceptable, okay? So, like, I don't know why we're like, I don't, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't, I don't believe in demons. Really? I mean, Jesus spent half his ministry. The demons were the first people that recognized him. And here's the thing is that I used to have a certain healthy dose of skepticism around what I considered the sensational. And I do believe that much of the sensational is red herrings uh, posed by the devil, but they're real. I remember early on at Door of Hope, and, and it wasn't until I started Door of Hope that I began to be confronted with the real spiritual strongholds in our city, that there is a real demonic reality all around us, and that there are people that are oppressed. It says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, and we need to understand that people become, Satan doesn't play fair. He takes the most broken, the most at risk, 
those who are already entrenched in psychological breakdown and drugs, you see it often in, in, in homelessness in the city, that de- demonic realities and presence, we can get confused with what is actually psychological and what is actually spiritual. And let's just say that it's a very complex reality because I've seen believers in the church that love Jesus who have been oppressed by demons since they started Door of Hope. I've seen people outside. We had a homeless man come in one, one night um, at the annex, and he literally was like Gollum. And he was, I mean, he was hunched over. He barely looked human. He had just jeans on, no underwear. The jeans were barely covering him and no shirt. And he just, he was walking around and he was mumbling in this, everywhere, like when he walked by you, you just became nervous. And so I went up to him because I was worried. It was on a body life service. Some of you might've been there. Actually, I I see some of you that were there. Ben, you were there. Um, And witnessed my complete failure in this moment. Uh, But this guy began to tell, I think he said his, I think he said his name was, was uh, Baal. And he like named, and then he started speaking in weird languages and we tried to pray for him and he would laugh at us. And then he would say, I think Ben was praying with me. He would laugh at us. And then he would say something like, he started saying things about me that were true, that nobody could know except my wife. And it made me insecure. And all of a sudden all authority was gone and I didn't know what to do. I lost the battle. He stood up and like made some crazy, gross, disgusting statement at me. And then I was like, I didn't know what to do. So we had a box of pizza and I'm like, do you want a piece of pizza? And he, he literally went like this. He goes, ah! grab the box and just ran down the street. And I'm like, that was crazy. I don't know what the, so I'm like, I'm never losing a box of pizza again to a demon possessed man. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and all joking aside, I mean, it was so crazy and so far outside of my comfort zone, I didn't know what to make of it. But I realized that, the, that then there was the heartbreaking component is that this person was a victim of the dominions of darkness, a darkness that we are told has been totally defeated by Christ. But if we don't live in the power of the gospel, then we're not going to bring freedom to those that are oppressed. Because the Spirit comes to free us. I see this with Christians, is that Christians continually live in the bondage of the same sin month after month, year after year. This this pseudo-salvation where they're like just saved enough to not go to hell, but not saved enough to experience any sort of joy or victory. It's It's a refusal to truly surrender to the power of the gospel. And so you're constantly fighting the strongholds within yourself to the point where you're useless in regards to the strongholds that are all around us. And I think that we can get uncomfortable with with these things that are outside of our normal experience. We had a girl in the church that literally came under an intense fever, was sick. Her friends took her to the hospital. She is a believer, but she had some serious anger stuff in her family that she was not dealing with. What does the scripture say? Do not let the sun go down on on your anger and give what? A foothold to the devil. And she came under a complete demonic oppression. She actually explained uh, to Tim and I after we prayed for her. And, and this time it was actually victorious. We went to the hospital and, and the doctors had no idea what was wrong with her. They, they, they couldn't figure out. They were convinced that she had done drugs. She'd never done drugs in her life. And she was, her, she was heating up. She was convulsing. There was a smell that was otherworldly coming off of her. She was touching. It was like the exorcist, literally. Like it was like as sensational as what you see in films practically. I mean, just she hit the Bible out of my hand. She was writhing. She was doing grotesque things with her body. Tim looked like a deer in headlights. And so did I. I'm sure we're both just standing on each side of the table. The doctor wanted us out. And I'm just like, 
we're her pastors. I promise we're not going to do anything crazy, but we do want to pray for her. And he's like, all right, you got a couple minutes because she's very sick. Um, and we, Tim prayed for her, and she was just kept writhing, and then I laid my hand on her forehead, and I didn't pray. I just simply said, in the name of Jesus, I demand that whatever unclean spirit has a hold of her that you leave now. And she let out this gasp of air, and whatever it was left with it. And then all of a sudden she was awake, and we were literally two minutes later, like cracking up, that I thought she was going to start crawling on the ceiling at any moment. And, and the nurse was really disturbed by the jokes that were happening. Um, but it was, it was a powerful thing, and it came out. We, I, we followed up, and she was sharing with us like how this thing got control of her. She believed that it was because she had undealt with anger, where she just kept giving a foothold to the devil, and it manifested fully that night. And she said she felt this thing take control of her when she was super sick, and all of a sudden, it, it was like taunting her because she was trapped in her own head. She said, I saw you and Tim come into the room, and this thing kept whispering lies about you guys and saying how much it hated you, and it wouldn't let me speak. And I was just like, wow. And so let me just downplay that. I don't like to talk about the really sensational stuff because that's not the primary way that Satan attacks and what I want you to understand is that those are red herrings to actually get us all excited about casting out demons when in actuality, in all my years as a pastor, I've only dealt with that three times. But I deal with Satan's attacks upon the church every day. And he attacks us through accusation. The main thing that he gets us is in whispering lies about us and about our position in Christ. He lies to us. He tempts us to fall into the trappings of sin. He gets us to forget that we actually have the victory and the authority to actually break the strongholds of sin cycles in our lives. He, he convinces us that once we have sin, that it's impossible for us to be forgiven because those are his two punches, is that on one side, it's temptation, and on the other side, it's accusation. I've seen the, I've seen the spiritual dominions of darkness bring down entire communities of faith when pastors give over to the lust of the flesh and listen to the lies of the enemy rather than being spirit-filled. And all of a sudden, you got a pastor that had adult, commits adultery and blows up his entire church congregation. Don't think for a second that there isn't a spiritual battle to diminish our witness happening against us every day. Doesn't mean that Satan is necessary for us to sin because I like to always say that if Satan died today, you would continue to sin tomorrow. But he definitely loves to play on our weaknesses and there is a dominion of darkness and we have authority over it. And I think that one of the great lies that we have bought into with the enemy is the belief that we don't have authority and victory in Jesus. And it's really unfortunate. 1 John 4, 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And I just want you to understand that the only right weapons that can break down the strongholds over people's lives and those right weapons are the words of the gospel ignited by the Holy Spirit, spoken in faith through a life that is consistent with the message declared. And this is so important for us to understand. We are both the church militant as well as triumphant. And if we don't hold that position, then we're blowing it in regards to what God has called us to be. Number three, the power, not just to overcome strongholds, but we have the power to influence the very heart of God. Now, there are some who actually hold to a, a particular theological strand of God's sovereignty that, that is called meticulous providence, where really God, everything is already determined and, there, and you cannot change God's mind. And the only purpose of prayer is to increase our faith. I do not believe that for a second. I don't think the scripture supports it. I respect brothers and sisters that hold to that view, but I personally do not. 
I believe that Romans 8, 26, it says, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I shared this before, but I just think it's amazing that the spirit, we're told Jesus intercedes for us and the spirit, and it takes two members of the triune God to make sense of anything that we have to say to God. And you should be so encouraged by that. Because people are like, I can't pray. We know, because it says that you can't. And I like this. Notice it says the spirit helps us in our what? In our weakness. We come back to the same formula. The power of the spirit comes through weakness. When we are weak, he is strong. When we decrease, he has the ability to increase. Our prayers, we don't have to know exactly how to pray. We just, God just wants us to talk to him, to communicate with him. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. And our prayers influence things. I always say that God, does God change his mind? Yes, he does. But he does not change his purposes, nor does he ever change his plans, nor does he ever change his character. God is sovereign, which means that he has the freedom to do what he wants. And he chooses to allow us to participate in his kingdom purposes. This is at least the, the view that I hold in regards to God's sovereignty. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What is a righteous person? Is a righteous person one who has gotten rid of all their sins? Or is a righteous person one who daily surrenders themselves to the presence of Christ who is their righteousness. A righteous person is not one who does everything right. A righteous person is one who has a single-minded focus upon the reality of Christ, one who takes their thoughts captive unto Jesus. The power to influence the heart of God means that as we're yielded to Christ, we have the power to make him known. And that is a powerful thing. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as working. Do we believe that God wants to empower us by his spirit to care for one another in prayer? We have people that will pray with you every week, but how often do you sit there when you need prayer? You really need prayer, but you're unwilling to make the effort to go pray with someone when the possibility of healing, someone of, some of you could be sick right now. And by the way, I had a woman come up to me um, crying after the last service who's a doctor, and she said, based upon the story I shared about my friend who we believe had demonic oppression in the hospital. She's like, I have a young girl who we have no idea what's wrong. She has cancer, and I think that she is oppressed, and I think I'm supposed to go to the hospital right now and pray for her. And I'm like, you should. You're her doctor. I can't do that, but you can get in there and do that. And she's like, will you pray for me? And she just started sobbing for this little girl. And I just think it's, man, I just, it's so encouraging to me when people are like, this is what the Word says. I'm gonna take that to heart and I'm gonna move out in faith and not live a timid life, but I'm gonna be an available witness because I think that's risky to be a doctor, to go pray for someone that's sick for deliverance. Uh, and so uh, I, I won't say her name, but just pray for the little girl uh, and, and this doctor. And may God bring deliverance to her this morning. The power of prayer uh, is, is something that, that is the outcome of a spirit-filled life. A spirit-filled man-woman is a man and woman who communicates, communes with God, the power to actually commune. Number four, the spirit gives us the power to patiently endure trials with joy. I was sharing uh, last week, that it's hard for me to not use him consistently uh, because as a person in the community that has passed, I would, I've often used Craig as an example of faith 
that endured to the very end. He lived a spirit-filled life to the very end. He, he was a witness to Jesus even when he couldn't talk at the very end. Laying on the bed in the hospital in Indiana, um, I watched him exude the light and love of Jesus. Was he scared? Yes, he was. Uh, was he, was he uh, experiencing grief over his illness? Absolutely. But he never stopped exuding the power of the gospel and the love of Christ. And he just carried that with him to the very end, to be a man who entered into the kingdom of heaven with people worshiping around him as a powerful testimony to the possibility of experiencing the power of Christ um, to patiently endure trials. I think that this is one of those areas that we often forget and don't like about the gospel. Colossians 1.11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That the diff only difference between the believer and the non-believer is not our protection from trials, but our ability to endure them and to endure them without actually losing our joy or our hope. In fact, Jesus, the night of his betrayal, you remember what he said to, the, to his disciples in the upper room. Here we are told that Jesus is the son of sorrows. The one thing you never see Jesus do in the gospels is laugh. Not that he didn't have mirth, but I believe that he experienced so fully the brokenness of the humanity that he loves so fully that every time he healed, every time he did something um, in proclaiming the gospel, healing, casting out demons, I believe that Power went out of him, and that brokenness was absorbed into him. I believe that he endured. He was working out our atonement from the beginning to the end. And, and the, real, the real grief and, and terror of the cross was, was evident even in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating blood, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, um, if you could take this cup from me, and, and, and what does he say? Not, not my will be done, but thy will be done. But just a little bit earlier in the upper room, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That power, there is still something manifested, something steadfast in the person of Christ. He gave us a vision of what the spirit-filled life looks like. He didn't ignore or try to pretend or wish away the pain or the suffering. He didn't say, I'm not really suffering. It's not really happening to me. He accepted it fully. He even called it what it was, which was pain. He even accepted the fear of it, but it still never actually eradicated his total confidence in his father. In fact, he says, all of you will leave me, to my, um, leave me alone, but I will not be alone for my father will be with me. I think that this is the inherent power of the gospel, that Christ, he never promises to remove your difficulty, but he does promise absolutely to be with you in the midst of it. Why do we not believe that? Why is that so hard? And that is compelling to an unbelieving world. Nothing is more compelling to an unbelieving world than a Christian's ability to maintain joy under great affliction or suffering. Finally, the Spirit gives us the power to love and to know love. I love in Romans chapter five, verse five, it says, and hope does not put us to shame because the love, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. I often say that nothing will compel you to endure the difficulty of living out the Christian life because it's difficult. The path is narrow and it's uphill. <laughs> it's as narrow as Jesus could think to describe it. And he says, there are few who find it. And I don't believe that that's a passage about who's in and who's out. I believe that's a passage about those who actually live victoriously and those who don't. 
because he's teaching specifically his disciples. And I think that this, past, this reality here is that God's love being poured out in our hearts is the only thing that will compel us to stick with it. If you don't really believe fundamentally in the depths of your being that you are loved infinitely by God, more than you could even dare imagine, if you don't believe that, you will never be a conduit for his love. I think one of the great hindrances that come to us in the attacks and the lies of the enemy is the belief that we have blown it and that God doesn't love us today. Listen, if God's love was based upon your performance, you are in so much trouble. I don't care how awesome you are. You have blown it. You already, you may probably blew it. When I said that, you blew it. Uh, the, the fact is, is you can't even get out of bed downstairs to the breakfast table before you've blown it a dozen times. Because the brokenness, the fundamental, this is the, the, the true understanding of total depravity is not that you're incapable of doing anything good. It's just that every component of your being is infected with this disposition called sin, which is a continual desire to take your life into your own hands. And so I think that this reality is that love, the love of Christ alone compels us to move forward into the world. It's the ability to know God's love, but also the ability to be a conduit of that love. And I think that Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 19 says it best. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And I love this. He says, what's the purpose of being, of being strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I don't know about you, but often the enemy gets me the most in the morning when I first wake up. I wake up and I feel like I could have done better yesterday, uh, overwhelmed by what's right before me. And when I have those moments, those moments of weakness where I'm just like, oh, this is so hard. It's hard to be a Christian. <laughs> it's hard to follow Jesus. What I need in those moments and what God is so faithful to remind me of is, is how insanely in love he is with me. And when I believe that, that alone has had the ability to get me to push through another day. It's that love that actually allows me to accept his forgiveness when I make mistakes. It's that love that helps me to push through another week when I feel like I blew the sermon, which I feel like half the time I preach. Um, because really, I mean, whoever arrives. Uh, and so I think that these, it's, if we didn't believe that God loved us, and many of you struggle with that, it's like it hinders God's ability to powerfully manifest himself through you. Because if you are living with this constant fear that you have somehow gotten out of favor with God, that you've grieved the spirit to the point where you are no longer able to be utilized by him. Um, you've bought into a lie. The spirit's empowerment uh, is, is a filling of God's love for us, which gives us the ability. And it is, an, it is necessary that we recognize that we cannot love the way that God calls us to love apart from his spirit. And so this power is that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And so these are the five things. The power that comes from the Spirit is the power to be witnesses of the gospel, 
the power to overcome strongholds both within and outside of us, the power to influence the heart of God in prayer, the power to patiently endure trials with joy, and the power to love and the power to know love. And so I close with this benediction from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.